This is Tell Me What to Read, the podcast of booktopia.com.au. I'm Nick Wasiliev, and today I'm delighted to bring you a special themed episode dedicated to Australian nonfiction. First up, Stefania sits down with Mandira Naidu, journalist, author, and radio presenter, and author of The Space Between the Stars. Then, Stefania sits down with Peter Fitzsimons to discuss his fascinating book around one of the most famous buildings in the world, the Opera House. Check the show notes below for timestamps for all interviews. Now, over to our interview with Indira Naidu, author of The Space Between the Stars. Hello, I'm Stefania Caponia, Booktopia's non-fiction category manager. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with journalist and author Indira Nadu about her latest book, The Space Between the Stars. Hello, Indira. Hello, Stefania. Lovely to be with you. So, for our listeners at home, we'll be covering some topics on mental health. And if you're struggling with any of these issues, you can always reach out to Lifeline on 13 11 14. Absolutely. Um, hello. <laughs> it's lovely to be here. You're welcome. Um, so to start with, can you please share a little bit about what your book is about? So Space Between the Stars is really about my response after my sister uh, died very suddenly during Melbourne's first lockdown. She took a life and I was plunged into very deep grief And on top of that, the whole nation, the whole world was also in a deep grief and a a lockdown. And what would normally happen when something like that happens in a family is you can reach out to your family and friends, spend time together, be together. We just happened to be in a period of history in the country where we weren't allowed to do that. We couldn't cross borders. We couldn't cross suburbs. So I found myself absolutely alone. And the only thing I had access to was the five kilometres around my apartment in Potts Point and the little bits of nature that were there. I was fortunate enough, the Botanic Gardens, Sydney Botanic Gardens were there. That was my solace, that was my refuge. So this book is about how those little pieces of urban nature helped me come out of my grief and heal and deal with my sister's death. So the title is The Space Between the Stars and you also refer to your sister as Star Girl. But can you share what the significance of the star theme is and what was the inspiration for the title? I was taking a walk one morning and I discovered, I was just drawn to this extraordinary tree in the Botanic Gardens. It was magnificent. It was one of those trees, faraway land, Eden Blyton, magic you know, faraway tree style trees, fig tree that must have been over 100 years old and huge, big roots. And I was just drawn to it. And I, I mean, I've always been a, na- a lover of nature, but no tree has ever affected me like this. And I s- just stopped and then I sat down and I just looked up in awe at this tree. And as I sat with it, I just started to feel so calmed and a real sense of serenity. I was in the middle of writing the book but I couldn't get into it I just every time I started thinking about my sister it was a very fresh grief literally I started the book a few weeks after she died which is a a pretty extraordinary Mm. time frame to to write a book in in your grief and I realized that what I was attempting to do was nigh on impossible and I was concerned I couldn't do it and I was sitting under this tree thinking how am I going to do this and out of the blue 
this thought came into my head and I'm sure it came from the tree and it said to me, if it's easy for you, imagine your sister as someone else, as some other special magical being. What about calling a star girl? And then maybe that may be easier for you to tell the stories of your childhood, what she was like, how you miss her, rather than using her name, which was still a little bit too difficult for me to, to say. And I realised, yes, that was the solution. If I just kept calling her star girl, which she was, she was the biggest star in our life, it was going to be easier for me to tell the story. So that's where it came from. And then the title flowed from that because I started looking at the stars and imagining star girl up there. And when you look at the stars, you see some of them really clearly, some of them are tiny, and then there's lots of spaces in between that you know there must be stars, but you can't see them from your distance. And I started thinking about not only the stars, but the spaces around it, and that's where the title came from. So Stargirl is the sister who passed. Then you have Dreamcatcher, Dancers with Wolves, (laughs) and Stormtrooper. Mm. So these are all people connected with your your sister. Um, So where did the names come from? Were they very specific or...? Just when I thought about what name I would call them, that they were literally the first names that came into my head. So my middle sister, yes, I refer to her as Dreamcatcher. She is seriously the most beautiful, kindest, generous-souled person I've ever met in my life. And she... She literally is that. She lives her life um, with this purity of that we do in a dream world. So th- that came to me straight away. My brother-in-law, my, my sister's husband, you know, it, it was a, a rocky road um, for him, uh, particularly obviously those last few years of her life. And I just think he's one of the most create, courageous people <laughs> I've ever met. So, you know, and he, and he likes that, that edgy way he's attracted to people who are passionate and fiery and creative so dances with wolves for me was really (laughs) quite a perfect title for him and stormtrooper for my niece uh because you know there's nothing worse than to lose uh, your mother in the way that she did and she was still very young 11 years old so for me she's just a trooper you know and she had to weather a storm so it it was it sort of just came out (laughs) of that so it's not a star wars reference well, it's also Star Wars as oh, well. Yes, you know? of course. Yeah, so I think that there was that little bit of starry reference yeah, there. Yeah. Lovely. Um, so, how did this book come to life? You mentioned that it started. You started writing it two weeks after your sister passed. A few weeks, yeah. So, was it something you were doing as a personal project, or was the intention always to share it? It was one of the most serendipitous things in terms of the, the book and the project uh, that could have happened really. I, I was in this deep shock of grief and I just, like most people are when they, there's a sudden death in their family, they, they just there's just a blanket of blackness that descends on you and you can't find your way out of it. And in that moment I got an email from my um, uh, lovely friend who I've been talking to on and off for a number of years about what my next book may be, my publisher, Jane Morrow. And she, out of the blue, she didn't know what had happened in my family life, said, I'd love you to write a book about nature, about the healing power of nature, biophilia. And this was exactly what I was starting to experience in my grief. I said to her, I think there's something there. I didn't tell her about my sister's death at that stage. It was more just... I didn't even know how to to talk about it. 
And then when I finally sent through my my um, uh, breakdown of what my book would be, I said, and I've ha- had to test this power of nature to heal because there's been this sudden death in my family. And she just went, oh, my gosh, that... I'm really sorry that that's you know extraordinary how those two events have come together, and I then realised that I think this was meant to be, and I think my sister wants this to happen as well because it just doesn't, as you know, publishers don't ring out and out of the blue or email saying, "Hey, do you want to do a book on this?" Which was exactly what I was going through. I mean, how did she know? How did she sense that? How did the, the two? ideas come together and so that's how it happened but of course the next stage was how to actually write it but as someone who writes I knew that writing for me has always been a way of making sense of things so even though I couldn't imagine how to start the actual project I knew that by writing it would help me heal I just had to do it so it's beautifully written it's moving and really insightful. We were talking about it earlier. It's very touching. Um, what was the writing experience for you like? The hardest thing I've ever had to do. Mm. I'd get up early in the morning, which is when I usually do most of my writing, 3.34, and I'd just sit at my desk and sometimes I just couldn't write at all. I, I'd look mm. at the screen, just like what most writers ex- experience, but mine was even worse. Sometimes I'd sit there and maybe just cry for 15 minutes, not even knowing why or what about. And I just keep pushing myself through it, you know, feeling whatever I was feeling and then trying to write a story as well and finding a way to tell the story in a way that I could write it. And I realised that the best way for me to write the story was to share all my favourite memories of my sister because she was a naughty little kid and that was going to be a great way to get into the story. And when I figured out that structure, it became easier to write. But it really was a, a, a sequence of going to my desk, trying to write, just breaking down and not being able to, just feeling lots of blocks, deciding stop it, you know, go to your tree, do a walk. I'd feel relaxed and refreshed and, and connected again and sit there for a while, come back and try to write again. But it was really difficult writing I have to admit it's the hardest thing I've ever had to write Uh, and to write in your grief I can see now why no one really usually does that because you've got no perspective Mm. either you're absolutely in the moment and when I thought about delaying it and maybe writing it later maybe taking a year to write it I realized that I probably would lose a lot of the sense of that immediacy of grief and I think that that's what's you really sense in the book this is someone in the throes of grief and a year later the way I'm you know I'm feeling now is a very different type of grief and I don't know if if I would have captured that same feeling. You you mentioned the naughtiness (laughs) so throughout the book there's interspersed these really delightful childhood little memories of Mm. star girl (laughs) and I couldn't help notice that they were all about her being naughty so how did you decide which stories you wanted to share in the book? What was amazing, Stefania, is that some of those stories I didn't ever think about until my sister died. Mm. And suddenly these stories, and maybe that happens to a lot of people when they lose a loved one, you suddenly remember things that you hadn't thought of before. So there are stories in there that I thought, I've never thought about how, you know, the cricket story and how she wrote, you know, in the autograph book and things. That was such a funny little story. 
And I hadn't thought about that at all. And I did mention it at her funeral and because I just think it captures the essence of her. You know, she was just so brave and upfront and just had no fear, you know, about things and um, but was also incredibly naughty. And being a little bit of an older sister, uh, often I would have to be the one, you know, trying to pull her in line all the time, you know, so that so I, I had a sense that I had to try to see her in a different light because you do have with a sibling, whether you're younger or older, you only have that relationship. And so I was trying to see her in a different way, not as a younger sister but also as just someone independent and separate from me because that's the other thing. While it's really good when you have that connection with a sibling, you can just keep going back to it all the time. And even though we, we you know, got much older, obviously, I kept on seeing her as this naughty little sister, even when she was in her 40s. Um, and it does limit the relationship in a way because she, obviously she was a wife and a mother as well and she ran amazing organisations and she was a wonderful journalist. So um, having those stories, it was good just to, to uh, relive them and give the readers a sense of who this person was that I'd lost, but also a sense that, you know, she was very um, – un- she, she, ex- she was exceptional. She was quite an unusual person. And, um, yeah, the, you got a sense of that right from when she was a little kid, you know. Um, so I have a sister as well. Ah. Very close in age, like yourself, and we're best friends. <laughs> so I could really relate to the relationship you had with your sisters – um, you write about how the three of you were so close. You were like the three musketeers, the yep. three amigos. <laughs> so for our listeners who haven't read the book, can you share what your childhood was like with your, your sisters? Describe it a little bit for us. Yeah, so we moved around a lot as a family. Uh, my parents are from South Africa where uh, my um, sister Monica and I were born. My other sister was born in Zambia. And we just had this very, very um, sort of, yeah, adventurous childhood. We moved to five different countries, went to about 10 different schools. So we kept on being moved out of schools and classes and cities and countries. And, and it meant that we lost connection sometimes with the friends we'd made in those other countries and, and with family, which made our bonds even tighter. So it, there was one year between each of us, but it even made us often we had to be each other's best friend. Or the first day of a new school, we were the ones who would hang out with each other, you know, because we didn't know anyone in the school. So it made us very, very tight and very close in a way that I probably didn't realise till later in our life either. I just thought everyone had connections with their siblings in that way and now I'm realising there's a lot that we experience that people can read and go, oh, I didn't have a younger sister, I didn't, didn't know, I don't know what that's like or um, I don't even have a sibling so I don't know what, what that connection may be like. So, yeah, the, it, it, we had lots of adventures together as well. So um, our parents were always out and about and doing their own thing, busy work and social life. So we spent a lot of time on our own, having our own adventures. And um, and I, being the eldest, often was the, the ringleader. I'd set up the crazy idea, okay, we'll get on our bikes and we'll pack a picnic and, you know, it was like the famous five. We'll just go off into the bush and we'd just cycle and picnic and climb trees and swim in rivers and we're very lucky we, we really did have that sort of childhood. And then we'd, you know, move out of that place and then suddenly we'd be in civil war Zimbabwe and <laughs> living there, you know, uh, surrounded by 
African animals and giraffes and things. And uh, we, it, it's interesting. We just, as long as we were together, we didn't really care. We'd be thrown into new situations, yeah. new people. And it just made us, yeah, much closer and much tighter. Yeah, I was going to touch on that. So the fact that my sister and I, when we started school, we didn't speak a word of English. So I think that really formed our connection, our bond, the fact that we were close in age, we're only 14 months apart, but also that being outsiders. So do you think that contributed, or how did that contribute to your closeness? This is interesting because, Stefani, we never felt like outsiders. We felt like the oh. insiders because okay. there was three of us. It's Because oh, okay. you're a gang then, yes. you know, because there's always more of you in a way, you feel, yes. like, you know, uh, so we, it's weird, even though we'd landed a new place and mm. maybe the cultural language was, was foreign, we always thought, oh, we're fine, you know, like, we've, we've been all these... Because you've got each other's backs. Yeah, and we'd been, we, we were very worldly young kids, yes. you know, we'd lived lots of places and so we knew that just because in this place uh, you have to be really good at um, sport, otherwise mm. you get rejected. We'd been in places where no one cared about sport at all. You had to be really academic, you know, and otherwise no one, no one valued you. And then we'd be somewhere else where it was another thing. So, you know, some, it always varied. So we knew it had really had nothing to do with whatever the, the social norms or the expectations in the place were because we'd been in places where that didn't matter, I guess. And, yeah, because there were three of us, and even when we had fights with each other, and, you know, if you've just got one sibling and you have a fight and then you both, you know, mope alone in other rooms, when there's three, you have a fight with one and then you go play with the other one. So it, it was also quite funny. So even if you have fights with each other, there's also another one that you can hang out with in, while yeah. the other one's sulking. So you've always got variety and so <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so yeah. it's it's funny. And that's the thing with sisters, isn't it? I don't think if people don't have close siblings, they don't understand it. The fact that you can have an argument, but then you still love them in the same way and you make up quite easily. Well, we do anyway, my sister yeah. and I. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's um, lovely. So now you've spoken about your relationship with this Morton Bay fig the botanical gardens near your home um, and you refer to the tree as my tree mm. so can you tell us a little bit about um, this connection that you built and what was the history that you learnt about the tree in your research so this tree it sits it's anchored to the hillside just above um, Mrs Macquarie's point in the gardens overlooking Bullamaloo Bay it is it just sits in the most beautiful but powerful location as well and I realised it was as much about the tree as the location of where it was that I was drawn to that particular area and the more time I spent with the tree the more I felt it speak to me I felt it wanting to tell me its story as well so I got in touch with uh, the head horticulturalist at, at the Botanic Gardens to find out the history of this tree. Again, we were in lockdown when all of yeah. this was happening, so I was very fortunate that there literally was the end of the um, you know last few days, and and then we went into lockdown after that, and then you know would have been mm. difficult to see him. So he met me under the tree, and very surprised that someone in the situation we were all in. Uh, pandemic, end of the world, who knows what was going on, that there was this, you know, woman who wanted to hear about a tree in the gardens that she was hanging out with. I don't know, he must have thought it was pretty nutty. And uh, so 
we um, we chatted under the tree and he told me not only was the tree 150 years old, which just blew me away, but that that particular area was a Indigenous uh, initiation area oh. where young men would come to become, you know, grown men. And there were all these gatherings. It was, you know, one of these Bora Bora gathering areas where uh, different tribes would gather just under my tree. And it had always been this special, sacred place. And suddenly I went, oh, I'm not the first person who, who understood this about this location. And it started making me feel, you know, that there was something, a reason I was brought there as well. And even the tree, given it was 150 years old, looking over Woolloomooloo Bay, that used to be the main wharves for, for Australia. So all the gold rush people arriving would come on boats and my, my tree would over would have overlooked that. All the men leaving and, and women leaving for the Second World and First World War would have left from those same wharves. They would have hit this tree, would have seen the broken people returning from the war. I suddenly realised this tree had seen so much and mm. it wasn't surprising that I was drawn to it and saw it as a, as a place that I could heal. And then, of course, it was also there during the first pandemic, the first Spanish flu in 1918. So it had seen it all. So my loss and my grief uh, was just one of the many that it, it, it experienced and watched from this vantage point. And then I thought about all the people that would have come, like me, under this tree to find solace. So this tree had just had so much experience with grief and loss and comfort and support. And the hollow, you could tell over the years, had been there'd been fires in it. People had obviously used it to sleep in. There were birds in my tree, the insects, the ants that I got to know and this tree was supporting all this wonderful life you know this community of support that it was giving and uh yeah it didn't take long before I saw it as my tree so um you meet a lot of really interesting people as you're exploring your urban nature um so can you share maybe what was one of the most surprising things you discovered about your urban neighborhood they were just, you know, we, as, as humans and people when we have some time off and we want to take a break, we, we do tend to think of nature in grand terms, you know, let's go and climb Mount Fuji or go up to the Himalayas or go to a big crashing beach down the coast. Like, it, it's always grand and big. And of course, when we were all in these restrictions, five kilometres, I mean, I was pretty spoiled, you know, living on the harbour, so I had a grand piece of nature there. But really, within five kilometres, I had mostly what a lot of people have, some footpaths with some weeds and some, you know, uh, dirty feathers uh, and a couple of puddles. And that's basically what most people have in their urban landscape. And, and I wouldn't have thought before this situation that those bits of nature, the bits of nature that we just overlook that we don't notice at all because we're either busy or you know um, distracted by our phones that they could be as grand and poetic and beautiful and uplifting as the most amazing snow-capped mountain or, or wild beach and I think that that really surprised me that I could see a feather and it didn't even have to be in its pure state it didn't have to be pristine white or in good condition it could be trampled and, and sort of as you know underfoot on a footpath and I could see the beauty in it and what this feather was and imagine the bird that it had come from and 
and uh, what a beautiful creation of nature that had helped these animals fly and capture the wind. And, and so because I was trapped in this small space, I became more appreciative and more um, attentive to it, I guess. So those little things, I wasn't expecting the weeds and the feathers and the puddles. And probably my favourite adventure, because it was something I could have done any time, but it was only in this situation of being in loss that I even thought about it, was to fly a kite, was to capture that wind, again, that's always around us, that breeze. And I haven't flown a kite since I was a little kid. And just what a joy that gave me and how little you actually need. You don't need to go anywhere or have an expensive holiday, but the joy of flying a kite and watching it being picked up by the wind and feeling the sun in your face and holding the string and trying to keep it aloft and watching the sun sort of dazzle on the ribbons, it was just such a joyous thing. Yeah. Uh, I just wouldn't have thought that that could just happen within my five-kilometre you know, restriction zone. So in a way, being restricted actually opened me up. Yeah, you, you go on a beautiful um, day, day out with your granddaughter. Yeah. Um, so we can learn a lot from children about exploring and about observing. Um, so can you share that day with, with our <laughs> listeners and what you learnt from her? And we've gone to 25 minutes, but that's okay. All right. We can add out some bits. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah, as you said, uh, young children just ha- have that joy and, and they see the beauty in those little things that we tend to sadly lose as adults. So I knew spending time with Abby was going to open my eyes to um, another way of looking at, at our world. And she'd already talked to me about puddles over you know the years, so I knew that she loved puddles. And this particular morning um, that I said, what am I going to – I want to explore another part of nature that – you know." and I did this walk to my tree and I saw a lot of puddles. There'd been some rain and I went, well, this is fun. And I've never again done this as an adult. I actually deliberately just pushed – splashed my foot in a puddle and thought wow why is that seen as why is that for me to do that seen as such a dangerous thing or a wrong thing to do like that because yeah you'll get dirty and I thought I need to change my perception of this and so I asked Abby you know come out on a puddle jumping date with me I bought us some new little gumboots and I wore my gumboots and we went for a walk to my tree and, and found some puddles and I let her decide what puddles, you know, because she's the expert in puddles. So <laughs> she explained to me, uh, you know, which puddle she was going to get. And I said, well, how do you decide? And she said, well, Dee Dee, it has to be a deep puddle. So you get a good splash, but it can't be too deep. So the water goes up and goes into your boots. And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> so she said, Le- leave it to me, I'll find one. And so we, f- she found this great puddle. And she said, okay, this is what we do. And so she grabbed my hand and she counted one, two, three. And we just leapt up in the air and just jumped into the puddle. And the sun was shining at that moment. And all the puddle drops just splashed up into the air. And the sunlight almost was captured in, you know, these liquid little globules of sunlight. And they just all filled like little silver droplets to the ground. And we were just giggling maniacally, the two of us, you know. It, and it was just such a fun moment, you know, splashing in water. And it reminded me when I was a kid, I used to love splashing in puddles. I used to love running through the hose or the sprinkler. And as an adult, 
yeah, you either don't want to get wet and dirty, you tell your kids not to because it's another lot of clothes you have to wash, but it's so much fun. It was so much fun and it was such a easy, simple, innocent thing that we can do all the time, but I don't know why we don't choose to do it. And then Abby found another puddle and this one was dirtier and thicker and muddier and that was a really good one because her gumboots stood the test for that one and it was all this mud went everywhere and was really filthy and we just both felt so naughty. And she also, you could tell she was thinking, wow, this is an adult who doesn't mind getting mud everywhere. What's going on? And I felt naughty in a good sense because... You were channeling your sister. I, I was. Because <laughs> yeah, because I would never deliberately yeah. make myself dirty, and I thought, why not? What's what's wrong with dirt? And it just felt so good. It smelt so good, and yeah, yeah we just giggled way. a lot. And then I was able to take her to my tree, and she climbed. She loved the tree. She climbed up into it and pretended, as you do, uh, that she had a little kitchen and this is where her bedroom was. And she made me a little pretend cup of tea and a slice of orange cake and. It was just so beautiful that she loved the tree and connected with it as well. Yeah, it was a beautiful day. It's beautiful. Look, um, we've hit our mark. So thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. And for all our listeners, please um, go to our website. Um, You can purchase a copy of the book. Um, There's some limited signed copies as well. Yes. (laughs) Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Now, over to our interview with Peter Fitzsimons, author of The Opera House. I'm Stefania Caponia, Booktopia's non-fiction category manager. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with one of Booktopia's favourite podcast guests and best-selling authors, Peter Fitzsimons, about his new book, The Opera House. Hello, Peter. Welcome. Stefania, che grande piacere da essere qui. Did I get it right? Bello. Bello, che bello. Perfetto, perfetto. Um, so this book is a bit of a departure for you from your other Yes, yeah, I, I think it's funny. I, I don't know where I got the instinct to go in different directions. I guess mm. when I did my first rugby book back in 1991, I could have done rugby books for the next 30 years. But after I did rugby, then I did a political book in Beasley. After I did rugby, I did sport. Then I did Beasley. Then I did war. Then I did exploration. Also, Nancy Wake, mm. Kokoda to Brook. Ex- exploration with uh, Mawson, with uh, aviation with Kingsford Smith. Trying different things, going in different ways, and I guess evolving different styles. And for this one, um, the, the gestation of this book's been seven years. Back in 2015... I read this uh, long article in the Paris Review about an American author, David McCulloch, who'd written a book, what turned out to be a a classic, an iconic book, uh, 50 years ago, on the history of the Brooklyn Bridge. And the idea was, you know, here we all all love this bridge, we know this bridge, we love this bridge, but what are the stories that go with it? And I thought, well, I live on the other side of the harbour from the Opera House, and Every day, I suppose, for me to get to my, from my house to where I can see the Opera House is about five minutes down, five minutes back. Every day, without exception, ever since I've lived in the area, when I'm coming back from anywhere, I go, I turn right, I go down, and I just look at it. And I, I've all, I mean, I'm not an architectural person or anything like that, but I've always looked at that Opera House and just gone, just wow. 
And I wanted to call this book, and the publishers, who remain nameless, <laughs> let's just call them Hushette, wouldn't let me. But I wanted to call this book The Opera House, comma, where the fuck did that thing come from anyway? And the stunning thing about it is, uh, well, you're a Sydney, you're a, like me, you're a Sydney sider, so you yeah. remember what a big deal it was mm. when the Four Seasons Hotel opened in 1982 at the bottom of George Street. It was the Regent back then. Yeah. Prior to the Regent, and we were, we were pretty swish in Sydney because we could go to the theatre and we could go to the Hilton Hotel up the escalators and there was a place where you could buy apple strudel and a cappuccino at 11 o'clock on a weeknight. We, and then the Regent opened and wow. My point is this. The Regent opened in 1982 and it looked swish and fantastic. It now looks, with the greatest yeah. respect, like a wet Wednesday afternoon. The Opera House was conceived in the 1950s signed off on by a New South Wales cabinet of 14 men who went to church on Sundays, lived surrounded by white picket fence, ate meat and three veg. They looked at the scale model of the Opera House and said, yeah, 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 we'll build that bastard. And not only that, so something conceived in the 1950s doesn't look like a wet Wednesday afternoon all these years on. It looks like a sparkling Sunday morning in the year 2525, and it always will. And so that was my starting question of how did Sydney, known in the 1950s as Manchester by the Sea, a seriously dull place, nothing ever happened, how did we get this architectural artistic pearl on our fair shores? And so that was the bit, that was the starting point. And um, it, it was uh, it was a joy to write this book. I mean, mostly. With books, I get emotionally exhausted by the end of them. I'm doing one on long tan at the moment. And, you know, like, oh, it, it can be emotionally exhausting. And, and sometimes you can give the book over with relief. Now, this one, you know, I was seven years from writing the first words to handing it over. And I handed it over with great regret because I loved it. The, there are so many stunning stories that are associated with how we got this thing. And, you know, like, I mean, they, they, there are so many stories, but I love, I love the fact that a, 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 a black American activist by the name of Paul Robeson was the first one to sing beneath the arches of the Opera House. He was in Sydney, early 1960s, and he said, I want to sing for the workers, and he talked to the workers, and he sang as they gathered round Old Man River. And this was the first, you know, singing performance there. And there was a young bloke there, a young unionist by the name of Paul Keating, who attended on his lunch break. <laughs> Just came down George Street on the bus. I think he was an office worker at the time, walked across, and he was there when Paul Robeson sang. Um, the Jorn Utzon stories I love. I mean, the tragedy... The, well, look, you, you ask the questions, I'm, I'm rambling, but... No, 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 that's OK. You're, you're going in the direction that I was going with, the, with, the, with my questions, so it's... Perfect. Um, yes, you were saying that you've got an emotional bond with the, yeah. the house and that every morning you go, I had the same experience. I was living on the lower north shore mm. and every day I would cross the bridge to go to work and without fail I would always look out the window and look at the opera yeah. house, always. And if people weren't, I would be looking around going, why aren't you looking out the window at this amazing mm. place? Why does it Why does it touch us so? I don't know. I don't know what it is, but... Um, and the, yes, the, and the difficulty of building it, I mean, that was, there are so many angles to the story, but Utzon yes. had, you know, the, the fascinating story of Jorn Utzon, who was this yes. Danish architect who was very strong on winning architectural competitions, 
but they were never built. Never and this, built this, this yes. time, <laughs> and he'd never run big projects. No. So this was, you know, he'd worked with a handful of people on, you know, good stuff. And he was, he was, his inspiration was a Swedish architect who, in the early part of last century, had designed the Stockholm Town Hall. And, you know, it had changed Stockholm. And his inspiration was to do a building for Sydney that would change Sydney. And it, and it did. Yes. You know, the image of Australia prior to the Opera House would have been boomerangs and kangaroos and, and maybe Uluru, you know, like, which is a nice thing. But never anything that, ne- never anything o- o- along modern lines yes. of, wow. I mean, I find the boomerang. I love the boomerang. I've just been careful not to disrespect the boomerang. <laughs> but, but my point is, it completely, yeah, it completely changed the, it completely yeah. changed the image of Australia, yeah. and the image of Sydney and the image of Australia. And, and one of the lines I quote in the book was. Uh, Oscar Wilde, when Oscar Wilde was at Oxford, one of the lines, I think he was 19 years old, he said, every day I find it harder and harder to live up to my blue china. And <laughs> blue china on the mantelpiece. And he had to live a life that was worthy of owning such beautiful blue china as that. And in many ways, Sydney and Australia, we've got to live up to. We've got this opera house. We've got to put on ballet and theatrical performances and opera and 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 drama that is worthy of such an extraordinary building and so the thing with utzon was it was one thing to have had the wherewithal to conceive it and one of his starting points he was living in copenhagen he goes to the marine shop show me a chart of sydney and his idea of architecture was he wanted things to grow to look like they grew there naturally so he looked at the contours what was on the headlands of sydney harbour and what he saw was there was frequently, like what one thing he noticed was what we know as the gap, how that graceful, I, th- I think you, maybe you call it a skillion, but it goes up. He wanted the vision of going up and then you look over the edge of the gap and down. So that's what grows on the edges of the headlands. And so in the contours of the Opera House, we can see the contours of Watson's Bay leading up to the gap. But when the engineers said, when they looked at it and said, you know, well, it's one thing, one thing to have conceived that. How do we actually build it? And the the the, the line that I loved was, they said, "Well, what's the what's the shape of the what's the shape of the shells?" And he got a Utsun got a plastic ruler and bent it and said and drew it and said that shape. Well, for the engineers, that's not good enough. And so began what was the well a decade and a half of doing it and famously. Uh, Utzon resigned halfway through and it was taken over by a triumvirate of architects and that that in itself was very difficult for them and Utzon. And the other thing, I mean, like so many stories, but Utzon, it is unbelievable, but Utzon never laid eyes on his masterpiece. It is Michelangelo never seeing seeing the David. It's, 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 It's Picasso never seeing, you know, like conceiving and doing something but never actually seeing it. And in 2000, my editor in chief at the Herald, Sydney Morning Herald, was a man by the name of Robert Whitehead. And leading into the clicking over into the millennium, Robert Whitehead conceived the idea, let's write to Woodson, contact him and say, you've never seen the Opera House. The idea is we'll fly you into Sydney, Botany Bay, we'll put you in the hotel for a few days to rest, then we're going to put you in a boat and bring you through the heads of Sydney Harbour and film you 
as the lights of the sun, of the light of the sun, of the new millennium, lights up your greatest creation. What a great idea. Woodson wouldn't come to didn't, did, and, but I mean, there's other great stories. I mean, it's funny. I finished writing the book about a year ago, but so all the stories are coming back to me. <laughs> but 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 Utsun at one point considered disguising himself as a woman, for, so to fly into Sydney, and then disguise himself as a woman and wander all over the opera house. But in the end, he didn't do it. But the other one, I mean, the stories, the the tragedy. Well, there's romance tragedy. Sexual scandal. Yes, I mean, did what did you think of? You've read it. What yes. did you think of the Eugene Goosen sexual scandal? I thought when I was reading that, I thought, well, it kind of explains why, in the end, they had some issues around the acoustics, right? Wasn't he the the, the person that was the expert on the acoustics? The acoustics. Eugene, Eugene. So with him with him gone, mm. it kind of really changed the dynamic but of it, the assessors as it's well. It's such an appalling story. This guy yeah. Eugene Goosen, he was the one. He was a he was a conductor, European conductor, yes. and he was Shows the one the changing the attitudes, right? Yeah. Well, he was the yeah. one that said to Premier Joe Carl, who's for my money one of the great heroes. Yes, He's the, the political story. hero of the book. Yeah. But Eugene Goosen comes to Australia as a great conductor, late forties, I think, for the first time, and then is installed here with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra, and he they play at the yeah. Sydney Town Hall, and he says to says to everybody, look, you know, Sydney Town Hall, you're kidding. This is not <laughs> you can't. We're playing in a barn. You know, we need an opera house. We need a specifically designed place for the opera house. And through the offices of the ABC, it was a really big deal. The ABC would put out concerts around the country. And that was a huge deal in the 1950s. And Eugene Goosen said, we need to have an opera house. We cannot put out great concerts in the Sydney Town Hall that's not designed for it. And he was able to convince the Labor Premier, Joe Carl, who came under a serious attack, from even from members of his own family. Why are we putting money towards something like this instead of hospitals and schools and roads? And one of Joe Carl's lines was, because my opera house, this opera house, will not be for women in mink coats and pearls and necklaces. This will be for washerwomen and waitresses and truck drivers, and it'll be for everybody. And one of the things when we launch the book at the opera house in a couple of weeks' time, I want to say in the presence of the the trustees of the Opera House, there's got to be a day totally set aside for free admission so that anybody yes. can come and enjoy the Opera House and a day specifically devoted to the memory of Joe Carl that you you bring as many people as you can and no mink coats and pearls and necklaces allowed. It's got to be for everybody. And so Eugene, that was Eugene Woodson's vision as well. He was he was motivated by that. Too, absolutely. Right? And Eugene Goosen, so was this conductor, manages to convince uh, Joe Carl and they begin yeah. the Opera House lotteries. But meantime, Eugene Goosen, unbeknownst to anybody, had a certain predilection for what these days would be mild, viewed as very mild sexual aberrations, whatever. In fact, we probably wouldn't even use the word aberration. It, uh, he had a strand of sexuality that none of, my, none of our business... Unconventional. Unco that's the word I'm looking for, unconventional. unconventional. But he was in a Glee bookshop and he, re he saw this book on art and he traced that, you know, there was, there was gargoyles and sexual images and it was just fantastic. <laughs> and he wound up involved with, a, with the, witch, the woman, that's the right, Witch of King's witch. Cross, Roy Norton, who'd been born in, all of all places, Linfield. <laughs> Very unlikely place for witches to come from on the north shore of Sydney. 
And so this is all very common today, right? Well, look, what he was, what happened was yeah. he then goes back to London and buys various images, yes. maybe sadomasochistic, whatever, sex toys, whatever. But stuff that on the internet today wouldn't raise an right. eyebrow. Right. He right. was arrested at Sydney Airport. He was completely and utterly destroyed. You know, his reputation was destroyed. And yet, in terms of giving credit to where that thing came from, Eugen Goosen can, can take a bow long after his death. Um, just a, an extraordinary figure. The, the, I cover the scandal, not the scandal, the murder, the kidnapping. Yes. I mean, see, again, it looks to the naivety of Australia at the time. We, hadn't, we didn't do kidnappings. We didn't do... We, I suppose we did the odd murder, but... <laughs> The 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 uh, kidnapping for ransom. Didn't kidnapping really for ransom. So they had you know the, those days somebody would win. You're not going. You're not going to win fifty ten thousand pounds. You're not going to win fifty. You're going to win a hundred thousand pounds. So it was a big lottery, and that was where the money for the opera house started to come from. And then somebody would win it, and they'd be on the front page of the Daily Mirror. Here they are. Here's Johnny and Jenny Bloggs with their fine son Jethro, and they live at Eight Edward Street, Bondi. <laughs> you know, and so and anyway, on this particular day, it was the Thorne family, Graham and Frida Thorne. Uh, the Thorne family and the son, the eight-year-old son was Graham. And anyway, they won it on the Wednesday. On the Friday, they sent him off to school and he was kidnapped and they got the ransom note. And the story, I don't want to tell all my best stories, you know, on this podcast, but wow, what a story of how they tracked down the killer. An amazing story. Eero Saarinen. Yeah, I love that story. The story of him, this is where I was touching on before about the, the makeup of the judges yep. who were assessing it. So if it wasn't for him, Jorn Utzon's drawings would have been on the scrap heap, right? Yes. Because they'd been discarded as being too wild. And he came along, show me what you've discarded, yep. pulled well, these drawings out and went, this is it. Eero, Eero Saarinen, yes, Finnish-American, yeah. famous architect. So they, they formed this competition up, they announced this competition we're looking for designs for the Opera House. You'll win a prize and you'll get to build it. And Jornutsen was one of those that answered. And then they get four, uh, they get an international judging panel, including an Australian, but Eero Saarinen was a Finnish-American architect of great repute. He flies in. He goes to the room in the New South Wales Art Gallery where they've got all the all. The others have been there for a couple of days. And they say, well, we've winnowed it down from 232. We've got 10 that we think are a chance. And... And Eero Saarinen has a look at them and he turns them over. Well, it's not that one. It's not that one. He gets to he gets to the end of the ten ones and says, well, it's none of those. Where are the others? Oh, well, there's the big pile over there. So he goes through them for the next three hours. He gets to submission number 218 and he pulls it out and he says, there, comma, there, gentlemen, comma, is your opera house and they look at it and say well you're kidding i mean what is it that's nothing you can't that can't, can't that can't be built and even if it could be built he says listen to me and two days later make no headway he said i'll see you down at Benalong point and why just get to Benalong point <laughs> they get to Benalong point there's a dinghy get in the dinghy what get in the dinghy he rows them 100 meters offshore get in the back of why Get in the back. So they get in the back. He swivels it around or up left or down right, swivels it around. And when they're up the back of the dinghy, he pulls out an image of the opera house and says, effectively, listen, you bozos. Think about this. Look at this. Understand this. 
And for the first time, ding, 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 yeah. the lights go on and they realise what this could look at, look like. And so Joe Carl announces announces it and the, it is met by, well, the, the first interesting thing, well, so many interesting things, but you and I in, as Sydney Siders know well the name, well, a lot of people know the name well all over Australia, all over the world, Harry Seidler. Oh, Seidler, yes. And Harry Seidler, I met him once or twice and... Mm. Um, you know, I don't think I don't think um, he warmed to me. <laughs> but, but no, no. But he was a, he was an acerbic genius, would be yes. what I would describe. He was an absolute genius architect, and had made a huge impact on Sydney. But his generosity of spirit mm. when he saw the winning submission was just amazing. He yes. so what happens is he he they they announced the day the big day comes. And the winner is submission number 218, somebody called John Utson. <laughs> no one and, had ever heard of it. And him. Harry Seidler looks at it and on that yes. day to the press says, this is a work of stunning genius. The judges must be congratulated for what they have done. And he supported Utson ever afterwards. And yet it was not... Uh, it was not always met with wild acclaim. There were stories in the, in the press, and I, I, I took delight in uh, writing some of them down of what people said about it. It looks like when they saw the scale models and the designs, a sink with plates stacked in readiness for washing, a collection of abandoned umbrellas, an unmade bed. Is it another plane crash? A cross between an igloo, igloo with air ducts and an air terminal an armadillo with rheumatism, copulating turtles. And I can't see it right in front of me, but there's one that says it looks like the the shaved toenails of an albino pig. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that anyway. It was, it was just extraordinary. Yes. And I noted that in the book. I thought the relationship between Seidler and Jornutzen was just delightful yes so beautiful we've got to go back to signing books but i want to tell you my favorite story of the lot and i don't care if i lose a sale i just tell everybody the story (laughs) that in 19 i think it's 63 so utzon basically for the first years is working remotely and this was even before the days of pandemics (laughs) (laughs) but he stayed in he stayed in hellebuck hellebuck um outside of copenhagen and he had his staff there finally australia said well you've got to come you know we need you on site and so he's flying with his family in a in a in an aeroplane. We flew him, being New South Wales, we flew him economy. And he was <laughs> he was a couple of hours out of Sydney at thirty thousand feet. It was cold, and he notices that the uh, what did we call them? We call them now flight attendants, but back then they were hostesses. So a hostess was handing out socks for the first class passengers and Utsun says uh, excuse me excuse me could I have socks my family's feet were cold could I have socks please and she says no no you well you can't this is for first class passengers not economy passengers and then an hour later she comes back and says uh, excuse me are you are you John Utsun from from uh, you John John Utsun he says yes he says ah look the radio Sydney has Sydney Tower controls just radioed and uh, it turns out that the Queen of England is waiting in uh, is the Royal Yacht Britannia is moored in Circular Quay, and the Queen of England would like to know whether you would like to join her for lunch. Oh yes, thank you. That would be all right. Oh, and by the way, would you like some more socks? <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. he was he 
became a, a real celebrity in Sydney when he arrived. He right? was. Such an unusual character. I worked very heavily with researchers. So, like, yeah. you know, like I, I like to trawl every bit of material there right. is and to work out what happened. And I like it when my researchers sometimes have intellectual tension between them and come to different conclusions. And very broadly, so the, my two key ones on this was Barb Kelly and uh, Libby, Libby Efni. And Libby Efni, was, she was working out of Mexico, but just fantastic. And so was Barb, absolutely fantastic. And, but they, they came to sort of different conclusions on Utsun, as a lot of people do, which was one, one view was that Utsun, it was just beyond him. He was a, the same genius that was able to conceive the opera house, was not blessed with managerial skills to run 120 draftsmen that were needed, draftsmen, draftswomen, to do the job. The other, the other argument, the other side of the coin is that Utsun was a genius and he was a good manager, but it was the bastardry of the New South Wales government that just wore him down till the point that he couldn't go on. Yeah. And the truth, I think, and so they, they would, they would, they would, they would right? respectfully disagree yeah. with each other and through the middle of that... Well, I think it's in the middle. Comes, comes the truth. One way or another, however, I think I've got to the answer of where the fuck that thing came from. It came through the efforts. It starts with Jorn Utzon. Yeah. It starts with Jorn Utzon's genius. It continues with, with the political still skill of Premier Joe Carl. It comes through multicultural Australia having requisite oh. skills of workers on site. It also came from the fact that it was planted in in a city that had already had the Sydney Harbour Bridge, that had had one of these controversies 40 years earlier. Are we going to build it? Will we not build it? We're going to build it. Yeah, we'll build it. So they built it and it was beautiful. So that it needed that track record of success. And then when Utzon left, there was the triumvirate, the triumvirate of, of architects that took over, led by... Peter Hall, and although also uh, another one that springs out is David Littlemore, who proved to be the father of Stuart Littlemore, who used to terrorise me on Media Watch. <laughs> and, and but but Peter Hall, I just tell one story there. Peter Hall, who was a young, brilliant architect, took over. And as I recount in the book, when I interview all the Hall children, asking for stories of their father, because he had a very tough time. He took it over thinking he'd knock it out in 18 months. Well, it was a big, nearly a decade of his life. And much of the architectural fraternity turned their back on him because there was a strong view that you don't take over the work of someone else. And yet the point was made to, to Hall, if you don't do it... Well, who's going to do it? We can't just leave this. These they were considering that. Weren't they, they did. They, they there was just leaving it like, unfinished, like, like the Parthenon, <laughs> an international embarrassment. Yeah, there were the Sydney siders came up with this exquisite plan. They could, but they couldn't get the job done. So Hall took took it over. But when I was nearing the end of the book, Antigone Hall, his youngest daughter, came and had a cup of tea, and I said, "What have you been doing?" She said, "Oh, well, went for a walk this morning." Then I said, "But that must be amazing." Uh, you know, when you're down there at Kirribilli Point and you look out and see the opera house that your dad, you know, yeah. devoted his life to, his finest work to, and she said, no, I look at that and I, I, I feel sad oh. because of a destroyed life. I mean, wow, yeah. wow. And yet, and yet, if you're an architect and you could put the opera house on your tombstone, wow again, because Peter Hall did a stunning, stunning job. And I dedicate the book to the architects, all of them, that, oh. that, that you know, that put their, put their work in. 
Thank you for having me. I've had a lovely time. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here, Peter. For everyone listening at home, don't forget to grab your copy. Um, It's online at the moment and we have some limited edition signed copies that Peter's been very generous helping us. Thanks to Indira Naidu and Peter Fitzsimons. You can find links to all of the books discussed today in our show notes or head over to booktopia.com.au. Join us on Friday as we sit down for a selection of interviews around Breezy Reads, where we'll be talking with authors Emily Henry and Tony Jordan. Thanks for listening and never stop reading.